Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Good to have you with us this morning. Good to be with you. Welcome as well if you're joining us at home online. We're going to be at the end of Hebrews 12 today, page 1197 of those blue uh, pew Bibles. If you want to turn there using one of those, um, I'll approach this a little bit different today because this is one of those passages, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, that when I first stepped into studying Hebrews and read it, I was like, I mean, if I'm just honest, I'm like, what the heck is going on here? So even your pastor... <laughs> Uh, finds himself at, at times um, discombobulated, a little bit lost in what's being spoken of. There's a lot of language in this passage that is um, uh, analogous, it, it, anal- analogies from different uh, periods in Israel's history. It, honestly, it's language that would have been really familiar to first century Jews or Jewish Christians at this point that the author of Hebrews is writing to. Um, wouldn't have been lost in them like it can be on us. And so Rather than read it and have you, you know, assuming more of you are like me than um, experts maybe in uh, Jewish culture and background, be like, what is going on here? I want to actually provide a little bit of a foundation for you of understanding what this passage is talking about so that as you're hearing God's word read, you'll better understand what's going on here a little bit. And then we'll dig more deeply into that. Uh, So the author... This is the end of really his argument from Hebrews chapter 1 to this point. We'll get to Hebrews 13 um, in the new year. We'll spend three or four weeks kind of wrapping up Hebrews. It's, there's kind of an interesting shift where it's almost like this addendum that he adds on all these practical things. He wants to make sure that he gets in an instruction. And there's some really important stuff in there, but it isn't necessarily a part of the logical flow of his argument. So here at the end of chapter 12, we're really seeing him pull together all these main strands of arguments that he's been making throughout this journey. And what he's doing is he's painting this picture um, of the blessings of this new covenant established in Jesus Christ as compared to the old covenant um, in, in the Old Testament that we see. And he does this through comparing and contrasting two key and important mountains that we encounter in Scripture. One is Mount Sinai that we read about, the Moses account in Exodus, and the other is Mount Zion, Mount Zion. So let me fill out a little bit about each of those mountains now, because this is really the bulk of this passage, is the author extrapolating the difference between these two and why that's so important. Mount Sinai that we read in verse, about in verses 18 through 20 and 21 of our passage today, excuse me, is this mountain in the Old Testament that Israel stops at on their way from Egypt where they were led out by Moses and the Exodus. They'd been in slavery for 400 years there and on their way to this promised land in Canaan, which they wouldn't get to for 40 years because of a bunch of wilderness wandering. And on the way, somewhere in Arabia, we don't know exactly where, they stop at this mountain called Mount Sinai. And it is dark and foreboding and scary, um, at least as it's depicted in Exodus and here in our passage in Hebrews, you're going to hear the author use language of thunder and fire and darkness and a tempest and even the possibility of death for God's people and even animals. And even Moses is said to have been so fearful that he trembled here. So this is the scene at Mount Sinai. And the key to understanding what's going on in this scene is actually that God is making his covenant with his people Israel here. All right, and a covenant has to do with relationship. 
He's establishing a covenant with his people and the basis for that covenant for this relationship, which is his law. And the X factor, if you will here, um, is, is this problem that is presented in God giving the law as this basis for relationship. It's be- because what the people are encountering, encountering there is this clash between the holiness of God and their own sin. And so here's the thing about the law that was given as the basis here. The law reflected what it meant for God to be holy. His character, his nature, his set-apartness, his sinlessness, his perfection. But because that was the basis for this covenant relationship with his people and they had this sin, there were some big problems um, that, were, that were still present in, in Old Testament Israel with this old covenant uh, and then this distance that we'll pick up on. In this, in this passage that God had with his people under the old covenant still. This is contrasted against another mountain called Zion that we encounter in this passage and elsewhere in scripture. That's verses 22 to 24. And Zion is a little more complicated because it's both a literal place. It's another name for Jerusalem, you know, which David in the Old Testament, uh, the first great king, uh, captured and then made kind of the capital of his kingdom, right? So it's a literal place, but it's also representative, figurative in a sense of, of God's dwelling place with his people, future. All right, so it's literally where Solomon ended up, which was David's son, building a temple. And the temple was, of course, where God's dwelling place was, was with his people and the Holy of Holies there, limited kind of to that space in terms of their experience of God's presence. But it stands for, Zion stands for so much more than this. Zion represents a future where God will dwell with man in, in an unprecedented way, unprecedented way, qualitatively as compared to that Old Testament, Old Covenant experience. And so that future reality of that experience of God, of relationship with God is inaugurated through the New Covenant, through Zion, which had just been established, remember, at this point in time in history when the author was writing uh, this letter. The author of, uh, of Hebrews is writing this letter to these Christians in Rome. And this is really what this letter is all about, helping them to understand what they have in this new covenant established through Christ as compared to that old covenant. Now, this new covenant also has to do with relationship with God. Again, covenant at its heart, um, at its core, is about relationship and a commitment to relationship. The X factor is still God's holiness and human sin, but the solution is so much better at this point than what happened at Sinai. Because the basis for this relationship is trusting in the person and work of God's son, Jesus Christ, who lived out the law perfectly. Unlike us, humans, past and present and future, who will always fall short of living out the law perfectly. And so now this covenant is based upon faith in the one who has lived out that covenant perfectly. So that's the contrast of Sinai and Zion. And then in the last Four or five verses, the author in verses 25 through 29 talks about receiving this kingdom which cannot be shaken. Still kind of on the Zion train here. And it's this reminder that what's here now, our present reality, will be shaken. And therefore, there's a warning here by the author of Hebrews to be sure that we're living for what cannot be shaken. And so this is a final warning that he gives us here in his letter to persevere in faith in order to receive this inheritance that's been secured for us through the new covenant. 
So once again, we see this tension that the author keeps throughout this letter. This isn't the first time we've encountered this tension of the glorious inheritance on the one hand that's been secured for us through Christ and the warning on the other hand for those who take it lightly. And it's right here again in our last 12 verses of Hebrews chapter 12. So let's read together Hebrews 12, uh, 18 through 29. And it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And when you have your spot, if you join me, by, it's not on the screen behind me as well. So you can either listen with your ears or use the, the uh, blue hardback Bibles in front of you, page 1197. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and the innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more will I shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for the chance to to be hearers of your word. Earlier in Hebrews, we've been told that um, if this day we, we, we hear your word, our ears are open to hearing it, and your spirit pierces our heart and gives us the understanding, don't harden our hearts against you. Lord, whatever subtly or powerfully may pierce our hearts today, convict our hearts about our interactions with, our understanding of you, or our interactions with one another, or in this world, your call on our life, oh Lord, let it sink in deeply. Let us not turn away and with a blind eye or deaf ears, but Lord, um, empower us today to walk in obedience to those things that you show us. We cannot do this apart from you, Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We need your Holy Spirit's help. We are weak, but in faith, Father. We want to obey in light of what you've revealed of yourself. We ask for your help in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.
So I want to spend more time talking about drawing out this stark contrast that we see between these two mountains, really with the goal and the aim of, with God's help through the Spirit, opening our eyes to the privileged reality that we live in through Christ under this new covenant. And so we see this stark contrast, and we'll start off by looking at Sinai, Mount Sinai again. And it's really a horror scene, is what's the picture that's being uh, painted for us here. I mean, if you are familiar at all, at all with J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and that the picture that he paints of Mount Doom or have even seen the movies, like this is kind of what I'm picturing um, that is being depicted here by the author of Hebrews and that you read about in Exodus as well. So we, we don't know exactly where Sinai was. It was somewhere in the Arabia Peninsula. There's a couple different possible destinations that they believe was Mount Sinai. We know it was, in either case, a, a pretty good-sized mountain. So we're talking seven to 8,000 feet tall, not the Rockies, but not the Adirondacks either. Something pretty big and imposing. And the description that's given of what's happening at this mountain is there's these dark clouds and this tempest, this storm that's brewing, and there's lightning and there's thunder, and the summit is literally shrouded with almost like smoke. I'm picturing like smoky, dark clouds. You can't even see the summit, and yet piercing through that is um, glimpses of a fire that's raging at the summit of this mountain. You can understand why Moses is uh, is described here as terrified because he's the only one that's actually permitted to ascend this mountain to meet with the Lord and receive the law. Um, and it's so dangerous for anyone else to approach this mountain that we're told anybody who touched it, even including animals, would die. And so the people are so afraid that they basically beg for this whole experience to cease, to stop. And as I said, even, and as we read, even Moses, who was invited to come up and receive the law, is said to be terrified of this whole encounter. So here's something that's important to understand here so that we have the right perspective of this horror scene. What made this a horror scene was not something so wicked about God, but the wickedness of our sin. Our sin, in other words, is so dark that this experience of This is the experience of a sinful person coming into the presence of a holy God. So don't mistake what I'm saying here as God being some gruesome character from a horror film. Rather, our sin is such a grotesquely malformed version of the image of God that he's created us to be and of his world that this then becomes our experience of his holiness. It seems terrible to us. Sometimes... And I, this comes from experience and even self-awareness. We, we live in such a way that we see ourselves as the innocent ones, wondering why God could be so terrible. Rather, we, in our sin, are the monsters without Christ. And so as we come into the presence of light and of holiness, it's terrifying, repulsive to us. God's holiness is beautiful. God was holy before sin entered the world in the garden with Adam and Eve, and they were not terrified of God. What makes God's holiness terrifying is our sin. That's so important to understand here. Because sometimes our perspective of God is such that he is terrifying and horrifying in and of himself, but that's only because of our sin. So that leads then to our first point today, which is this. Delighting then in grace... What God gives us that we do not deserve, delighting in that is preceded, must be preceded by trembling before God's holiness. Delighting in grace, which is the new covenant established in Christ, is preceded by trembling before holiness. 
the old covenant here that we see at Sinai. And this is vital theology for anyone who comes to recognize Jesus as their Savior, their need for a Savior. In order to have an adequate understanding and theology of the gospel, the good news in Jesus Christ, we first have to go past Sinai. In other words, we first have to understand deeply the holiness of God. Where this is lacking in our experience and in this world, symptoms may include treating sin lightly, easily justifying sin and evil that we see around us, or not even seeing things as sin that God calls sin at all. It may look like treating forgiveness lightly, not feeling the gravity of our sin that we've committed against others, not seeing our need to seek the forgiveness of others who we've harmed or sinned against. It may look like ample complaining, especially of the kind that's directed towards God. Right? We can think he's being unfair or unrealistic when in fact we just may have lost sight of his holiness. You see examples in Scripture of God's people when they encounter fully God's holiness like John the Apostle or Isaiah and they're just speechless. All complaining ceases. All questioning of God ceases. John is said to have fallen as if dead in the book of, beginning of the book of Revelation when he has this encounter with God. Our gripes and complaints become small when we grasp the reality of the chasm that exists between our holiness, and God's holiness. So back to Sinai. When you encounter the holiness of God apart from Christ, it's terrifying, and it ultimately leads to death. In fact, there's this strange but all-important dissonance for us to see that's taking place here at Sinai. God is saying, I want a relationship with you. That's what a covenant is. It's about establishing a relationship with you. And at the same time, he's saying, stay away. Don't approach me because if you come too close, you will die. Get that tension because it's both. God wants the relationship. And yet, such are the circumstances of the peop- his people and their sin that if they come too close to him, it's all over. So clearly, this wasn't the best or most suitable long-term arrangement. Now, before we kind of move on to contrast Sinai with Zion... Let me just comment on a natural question that may arise. At least it it, it has for me in the past, did this time too, and it's just something I want to speak to. You might think to yourself, man, it would be a bummer to live at this point in time in salvation history, to be like God's people back then at Sinai. Like that's not the ideal situation for a relationship with God. Um, And and, I mean, that's kind of the way I feel. That's why the question comes up. We might even think it's not fair uh, that you know, people have experienced God differently at different iterations of salvation history, throughout history. A couple things I would say. First of all, no. Salvation is and was possible for God's people at any point in time in history, prior to Christ, after Christ, all of it based upon grace through faith in what God had revealed of himself. Jesus was still the source of Israel's salvation at the foot of Sinai. And Their faith was to be in what God had revealed to them at that point in time. And there's this sense that they had glimpses of this coming Messiah, of Jesus. If you remember back in Hebrews 11, it's really interesting how when we were walking through the hall of faith and all these different figures in Israel's history are listed and for the ways in which they exemplified their faith and trust in God, when we get to Moses, one of the things that it says about Moses is he considered the reproaches 
of, uh, of, of the world, reproach of Pharaoh, um, uh, to be, or, or excuse me, the reproach of Christ, and otherwise he was identifying with Christ's persecution as better than all the riches of the kingdom of, of Egypt that he could have had. Um, and so it's just interesting, that language, the, he considered the reproach of Christ better than those things. There's this sense that even prior to Jesus, God's people have understood something about God's plan and the Savior to come. And it's, in, it's by faith in that person, Jesus, prior to him coming or after him coming, that we are saved. So salvation was possible and did happen for God's people prior to Christ. That's the first thing. The thing, second thing I want to point out is there's, if you think about it, just as an interesting exercise, there's advantages and disadvantages to living at any point along the history and the timeline of God's people. Think of Adam and Eve. The, the, the sobriety they would have had to have walked with God without sin and then the fall, understanding what had been lost. Like, I can't relate with that. I can't understand fully what they had before sin. That's an advantage to living in that era of salvation history. Or Moses and Israel didn't necessarily have the intimacy Moses seems to have when you look at his story. Showcases actually what was to come through Christ for those who live under the new covenant. But for the rest, there wasn't the intimacy there. There was more of this distance. And yet they experienced things like the parting of the Red Sea and the pillar of fire by day and cloud, or fire by night and cloud by day leading them and manna, this, you know, basically heavenly food that was on the ground every morning for them to eat. Like, listen, I safely can say I don't think any of us have experienced those kinds of things in here. Even when you think of Jesus' contemporaries, the people who lived in his day, Man, the advantage of seeing God in the flesh, yet not all of them even lived to see Jesus' death and resurrection and fully understand and comprehend who Jesus was like those who lived after him um, have come to understand, right? So there's advantages and disadvantages. I say all that, and yet I will also say this. I think our time that we live post-Christ is most remarkable all, because we have all the benefit of hindsight now. Understanding Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of everything that we see in the Old Testament. And we have unique access to God. And so I think the author of Hebrews would agree with this, which is why he starts his warning in verse 25 with these words. He says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, and he's speaking of Moses at Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The message and the news of salvation through Jesus Christ. He's done this before, right? At the beginning of chapter 2, we read about the, the message <clears throat> delivered through the intermediaries of the angels to Moses and how, how much more we'd be accountable for the message that we have of salvation in Christ. It's this argument from lesser to greater. So, in other words... There's no time in history I think I would rather live than now. Maybe I would have liked to live as Jesus' contemporary and live long enough to actually see him die and rise from the dead. That would have been the best, all right? They had it the best. But because of our vantage point that we have, we are all the more accountable now to how we respond to what God has revealed. There's a privilege and a weight of accountability that we have. So let's talk a little bit more about that, that vantage point and what it is and what we have that the people under the Old Covenant did not as we look at Zion, uh, at Zion now. So if, if Sinai was this horror scene that was unfolding, then Zion would be this scene of celebration is how the author is depicting it here. But first I want to say, to kind of <clears throat> lay out a grid through a, or filter 
through which we can understand the author's words here. There's, there's both a now present experience and a not yet experience that's depicted here. You've heard us use this language before when we've talked about what God is saying in his word. Um, some of this that he describes here in these verses, we, we are experiencing only in part. But ultimately, the fullness of the experience of everything Christ won for us through the new covenant will only happen when we get to the new heavens and the new earth that God will create. The author uses here the language of the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem. And it probably, if you were here with us when we were in chapter 11, brings to mind the language of that chapter. These saints who are living by faith in light of eternity. right? So Abraham, in chapter 11 of Hebrews, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The other saints who were in view there in, in Hebrews 11 acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one. So similar language. So we know that the author is, is referring, in part at least, to something we haven't fully experienced yet that's future, that we, also too look, that we also look forward to and hope. But at the same time, let's not mistake the fact that there's been no changes that we experience by virtue of what Christ has done for us under this new covenant. Because in verse 22, the author starts off this contrast with Sinai by saying, in present tense language, but you have come to Mount Zion. You're already there. You're at the footstep of it. You've moved your way. You've started to move your way up this mountain. Because there's a new kind of relationship with God that is available now through what God has done in Christ. Because of his role as high priest, because of him being the perfect sacrifice, which the author took, I don't know, seven chapters smack dab in the middle of Hebrews to cover. So go back and read that again or listen to those messages again if you want to understand how Jesus secured for us this new covenant. But he secured for us this new relationship with God. And so what characterizes that relationship? What characterizes this experience of living under the new covenant or as people who have come to the foot of Mount Zion as it's distinguished from Sinai. In other words, what elements of the new covenant are available to us now? Present tense. Three things. Unprecedented access to God, unprecedented grace, and a posture of celebration. Those are the three things that we see here in these verses. So first, unprecedented access to God. Never before, since the fall, was this kind of access even possible for people. When the author speaks of the city of the living God and of the heavenly Jerusalem, he has both a future and a present, uh, uh, present reality in mind. It brings to mind Revelation 21.3, which depicts the ultimate reality we look forward to, but that we're experiencing in part now. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, This is John reporting back on what God is revealing to him through this vision. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So again, there is a sense in which the perfection, the fullness of this experience is future, but also this is one of the main points the author has been establishing through this letter that is a reality for you and for me now through Christ. In what is perhaps the, the most popular and maybe even important verse in all of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16, the author said, Let us then with confidence 
Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There is such a massive difference between God's people as they experienced it under the old covenant versus the new covenant. It's the, it was the, dif- it's the difference between being invited to chat with the king in his throne room, personally, face-to-face with him, versus being at the ba- base of a mountain far away from where a palace is built that a king lives in who communicates to you through messengers that he sends to you. That's the difference in qualitatively in what Christ has won for us through this new covenant. And so the question then is, why are we granted this unprecedented access to God? And it's because of our second characteristic of this Mount Zion, and that's unprecedented grace. Again, Hebrews 4.16, let us then draw with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If the Old Testament, or excuse me, the Old Covenant is characterized by God's holiness and law, then the new covenant is characterized by God's holiness and grace. Holiness is still in view here, but what should sober us now is not the flashing lightning and thunder and fire, the horror scene that is at Sinai. What sobers us now is not the horror scene at Sinai, but the horror scene of the cross, which necessarily exists because of our sin, and yet it also exists because of God's grace and love. Whereas at Sinai, the punishment of death would fall upon those who dare to approach and touch the mountain of God. At the cross, the punishment of death fell upon God himself, upon his son Jesus Christ. This, by the way, is the idea behind the author's words here in verse 24. Kind of a strange phrase until you understand he's trying to unpack this distinction where he says, that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Well, what does that mean? That's referring to this scene in Genesis chapter 4, which is the first instance of murder that we see in the Old Testament, where Cain kills his brother Abel, their sons of Adam and Eve, and spills his blood on the ground, kills him. God comes to Cain, and he says this to him, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So you may ask, crying for what? For justice. Abel's blood required a price be paid for that injustice. Jesus's blood was that price paid. Not only for that injustice, but for all injustices, all sin, particularly those who through faith trust in Christ. That's why. Jesus' blood is better than the blood of Abel. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And that's grace because you can't do anything to earn that and there's nothing that you or I have done to deserve that. That's grace. And when you receive this grace, it yields the deepest joy and celebration possible for humanity, which is the other and final attribute of this new kingdom of Mount Zion that I want to talk about here for a moment. The people of Zion are marked by posture of celebration. In verses 22 and 23, the author speaks of innumerable angels in festal gathering, along with the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, which is speaking of the saints who have been made righteous because of Jesus, right? And that prior to that, the angels who are there with us, celebrating what God has done, marveling at his grace in Christ. 
And it's a scene of celebration. In the Greco-Roman world, these, this expression that's used here, these words that are used here, would have brought to mind the celebratory atmosphere of an athletic event where people were just roaring, cheering for their favorite team who just scored something or their favorite athlete who just crossed the finish line first and the whole stadium erupts in a celebration. That's kind of the picture here and that's kind of the idea. But what's being celebrated here under the new covenant? Instead, it's all that God has accomplished through Christ to establish this new covenant, this new relationship. It's the the, the freedom and the forgiveness and the life and the unprecedented access to him because of the unprecedented grace in Christ. These are the sources of our celebration. There's nothing greater in this world worth celebrating than what God has accomplished for us through Jesus. How does your joy over that reality measure against other things that you celebrate in life? This isn't going to be a guilt trip that I'm going to lay upon you. Rather, what I want to do right now is invite you into an opportunity. Um, Because here's the thing. If you don't ever find yourself welling up at times with joy and celebration, even in a way that other people might find to be undignified or in a way that might measure up against the other things that you celebrate um, so robustly in life, whether it's your favorite sporting team, um, winning whatever championship that there is, or anything else, all of that pales in comparison to the joy and the celebration that is innately possible in the hearts of those God who has made, who he has saved through his son Jesus. It just means the opportunity is there the, for you to grow in joy, grow in celebration. If your greatest experiences of celebration in life aren't informed by what Jesus has done for you, it just means not that what Jesus has done for you isn't as great or worthy of celebration as those things. It just means that the opportunity to grow in your joy amidst a fallen and broken world, despite your circumstances, is all that much more greater than the greatest thing you've ever celebrated before. Because that's what happens when you come to Mount Zion. Is your life, along with the rest of the people of God around you, the community of God's people, will be marked by joy. So finally, there's one more warning that the author gives at the end of this passage in verses 25 through 29. And again, this is one of the key themes of the book. It's like sometimes you just want him to to let you off on just celebrating, but then he tempers that by giving a sobering warning of a kind. So there's this tension between a charge on the author's part to see the inheritance that awaits those who are in Christ and then a warning for those who take it lightly. So he does this through first making that argument from lesser to greater, saying, hey, listen, if you know, if those who are at Sinai didn't get off, who weren't listening to God's word through Moses, his earthly man, how much more should we tremble if we are disobeying or not heeding God's word through his son, Jesus Christ? So there's the argument from lesser to greater, but then throughout these last few verses, there's this language about things that can and cannot be shaken. The things that can be shaken referred to this world and the things in it which will pass away. The things that cannot be shaken refer ultimately to the eternal kingdom that awaits, the new heavens and earth, but also the things here and now that will last into eternity. So the simple question that's being asked of us 
through these words of the authors, are we prepared for the final judgment to come? And we can evaluate the the answer based upon where we've made our investment in this life. If this world and all that is in it will pass away, so things like houses and jobs and careers and success and money and retirement accounts and assets and hobbies and health and experiences and the list could go on. If these are the ends that we have lived for, all of these things will be shaken and consumed by God's fire ultimately. And if there's nothing left, if your life has been about pursuing, has not been about pursuing or stewarding those things for a greater purpose, for the glory of God, for the good of others, because of what Christ has done for you, then you are probably a part of the kingdom of this world, but not the unshakable kingdom that is to come. And so my prayer, if you find yourself in that place today, if the Spirit is working in your heart in that way, is that you would pass before Mount Sinai today. That you'd experience the terrifying reality of God's holiness because you're recognizing yeah, I am a sinner, and I am in need of a Savior. That your eyes would then be opened to see how God has provided that salvation for you in and through his Son, Jesus Christ, so that you could join the saints who are in the unshakable kingdom, who are marked by a joy that defies our circumstances, and become a fellow heir of the inheritance that awaits those who have come to the foot of Mount Zion. Listen, if you are uncertain about where you stand, if you are uncertain about what all that means, about who Jesus is, about what the gospel is, please come and speak to one of your pastors. After church today, grab us, email us, speak to somebody who you know here, if maybe you came with somebody here today. Don't hesitate. We would love to be able to share with you what Jesus has done for us as a sinner also, but saved by God's grace. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we, we don't have the words to be able to capture these things, but we will say them nonetheless. You are a holy God as we've seen you reveal yourself in your word today. And you are a gracious and loving God, as we've also seen you reveal of yourself in your word today. And no greater are those attributes revealed than through what happened on the cross. That your perfect and holy and divine son had to die in order for there to be a way for us to be able to come into covenant relationship with you, displays your holiness and let the gravity of that fall upon us today. And that your son, that you would be willing for him to die for us who have sinned against you grievously. No greater picture do we have or reality than that to display your grace and your love toward us. Well, let that fall on us just as heavily here today, Lord. Be at work in our hearts, wherever we're at on this journey, Lord, to draw us closer to yourself. We have that access through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.